0: You're listening to the fourth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station, Frank Peretti's America.
1: I'm DL Mayfield, a writer and neighbor.
0: And I'm Crispin Mayfield, a therapist.
1: Together, we like to overthink evangelical artifacts from the '80s and '90s.
0: This season, we're doing a deep dive into Frank Peretti's best-selling novel, This Present Darkness.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: been having way too much fun making music for all these podcasts that I've been doing.
1: Yeah, it's like a weird side hustle you have that's really good.
0: I actually, uh, before I wanted to be anything else, I wanted to be a musician. And I had a very short stint of making really weird music. Like, if you made weird music that wanted to be hip-hop, but was written by a therapist.
1: Yeah, it wasn't that short. (laughs) (laughs) And you're still making it, I think, in your head sometimes. But yeah, you're really good at podcast jingles. Who knew? Right. If anybody wants to know where all of our music comes from, it's Crispin.
0: Danielle thinks I should just do that as... I could just like quit my job and do that all day. Right. I don't think that's what you were saying. No. Right. Okay. But we have an interview with Daniel Silliman.
1: Yeah. This is like a new thing for us. Usually it's just us two jabbering away about like Adventures in Odyssey, but this season... You know, we are diving into Frank Peretti and we need to talk to some experts. And a lot of people told me I should talk to Daniel Silliman. He's a news editor at Christianity Today. Um, He has a lot of like fancy degrees and does a lot of interesting work. But the reason I wanted to talk to him is because he actually did a dissertation on like evangelical fiction publishing phenomenons, like the top five books. And uh, This Present artist is number two.
0: Right. Top five books that sold over like a million or something, right? Yeah.
1: So like best-selling Christian
0: fiction. Yeah. Which from, is a very niche, from but From the end of the 70s to now. Yeah. Yeah. Niche, but fascinating. Yeah. The Bible wasn't on that list, huh? Is <sighs> it Bible fiction? Sh- oh. <laughs> oh my
1: gosh. You just added yourself.
0: Touché. As a heretic.
1: Almost <laughs> as a heretical. <laughs> um, yeah. So speaking of almost heretical. I wanted to say that if you are local anywhere to the Pacific Northwest, you know, we are on the outskirts of Portland, but uh, we're going to be doing an event on March 22nd called Faith in the Age of Fear. And it's basically just me and my church organizing a bunch of very cool local people to come and speak, um, including people like Kelly Nickandeha, who's one of my best friends and one of the best theologians out there um stephanie tate will be there brandy miller will be there the almost heretical guys will be there scott erickson hopefully Lee leroy barber michelle lang just a lot of cool people and you too Crispin. yeah you're gonna be on a, a little panel
0: right mm-hmm. that's what they call nepotism i know no a-
1: and i, I will be talking it. a little bit about <laughs> us the illusion of safety in the age of fear which is comes from one of the sections of my new book the myth of the american dream
0: which is coming out in may i thought may. it was coming out in
1: april it's actually coming out on our son's birthday
0: it's back there yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> it started there and no, then it went now to. Now it's back. May 5th, hey.
1: y'all. Cinco de Mayo. Which
0: is just for the little Mayfield family trivia. So strange because your first book came out on our first daughter's birthday.
1: Yeah. So my first book, A Similar Girl Home, came out on my daughter's sixth birthday. And now my second book is coming out on my son's fifth birthday. And, um,. I will be away at the coast celebrating my son, and I will not be around for a <laughs> hoopla. So yeah. that's the way it should be.
0: For his golden birthday. That's how he's been negotiating. Five he's on like, the fifth. He says, for my golden birthday, I want... Okay, before we get to Daniel Sullivan. Uh, we gotta. If we're gonna start out this series, I gotta know: Are you an angel or are you a demon? I have an online quiz. What I was gonna say? What are you
1: talking about?
0: <laughs> an online quiz. So I am gonna ask you the question. It sounds naughty. And then it actually, the picture here Uh-oh. is like a little naughty. Uh-oh. I mean, the demon is like very muscular, and then the angel is very sensual.
2: Are they both male?
0: They're like no, they're male and female, and they're like oh. entwined. Um, so, first question: Have you ever been in a physical fight? No. All right.
1: Unless kicking my sister's counts, I don't know. Yeah, I'm gonna say no.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, sprinkle or submersion?
1: Submerge.
0: You're such a wait. Do Mennonites?
1: Mennonites don't do anything. Oh, that's I'm true. just kidding. That's probably not true.
0: No, they're Anabaptists, which there we means go.
1: They,
0: right. Favorite color? Teal. Okay. Donuts or pizza?
1: Both? Pizza.
0: <laughs> donuts on pizza. Yeah. Pizza on donuts. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to protect religious liberty in our United States?
1: If we're including Muslims, then yes.
0: Oh. I was expecting you to say no. Which would have made you. I a mean, demon. I wanna
1: I wanna <laughs> protect I was like, I wanna protect religious liberty for my neighbors. Yes.
0: True. So that I'm a demon? Yeah. I'm a demon. Yeah. Oof. No, I don't know. Actually, I was expecting you to say no, that you wouldn't do whatever it takes. But I guess I don't know you very well. I
1: wouldn't kill.
0: That actually wasn't on the quiz. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening? (laughs) You're just trying to trap me? What does the quiz
1: say I am?
0: Uh, (laughs) This is actually just me. (laughs) You. Writing things on my phone. You're
1: evil. This isn't a real BuzzFeed quiz. That's what you're telling me. Yes. <laughs> oh,
0: my <God. laughs> But I did really find a quiz with that picture on it. But it was stuff like, have you lied? Have you cheated? Have you stolen? It was real boring. I
1: have not done most of those things, I'm, I got to say. I mean, mm. maybe in my heart I have, so.
0: Yeah. I know. That's why I thought it would be boring. I know you well.
1: Well, based off of Frank Peretti's book, I'm much more angelic.
0: Mm. You know what I mean? hmm Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely the hairy one here.
1: Okay, well, we got to get to this interview, but one more quick announcement.
0: Right. So a week ago, I launched a new podcast on attachment and theology, which we could not have done without our Patreon supporters. We
1: love you. Thank
0: you guys so much. So it's called Attached to the Invisible, and you can find it in all the different podcast apps. Um, Sorry, with a new episode on that. Um, and and then one last thing, as we're going through this um, and you're listening, uh we would love to get any questions that you have. We will uh, talk about them in this little intro part before the interview. so yeah, send us questions, your questions,
1: comments, or concerns and Crispin, do you wanna just name drop a few people they can look forward to listening to after this interview
0: yes, um so. Lisa Sharon Harper is going to be oh our my next gosh. interview. Oh my gosh. It was amazing.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: Um, I got to inter. We interviewed one of my favorite people ever, Brad Jerzak Oh, Crispin was
1: fan I, fanboying
0: out yes,
2: the I was wazoo. Little,
0: I had to
1: really pick up the slack. No, I'm just kidding. A
0: little starry eyes. He was starstruck.
1: That's how I was with Lisa Sharon Harper. We all have our things, right? Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, who are some uh, Connie Baker? Who is a therapist, she's a specialist in religious trauma and abuse. Yeah, and
1: then we also had Joshua Deese, who he has written a bunch about conspiracy theories. It was a really fascinating conversation with him about why people are drawn to conspiracy theories. And then we have Leah Payne, who um, is a church historian, teaches at George Fox, and she's a co-host of the Weird Religion podcast. And she had really amazing things to say about Pentecostals. So... Yeah, this is going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. You and I will be back in probably after a few interviews to, um, you know, have a normal little episode of Just Us talking. But right. let's get on to Daniel Silliman. Okay, well, I'm really excited today. We have a real expert to talk about all things Frank Peretti and in particular Peretti's book, This Present Darkness. Um, today I'm going to be talking with, Daniel Sillman. And Daniel, I just love if you would be able to introduce yourself in like a sentence or two.
2: Yeah, happy to. Um, I am the news editor for Christian today, as of recently, and I have a PhD in American history um, from the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Um, and I wrote my dissertation on the history of best-selling evangelical novels, including one chapter on Frank Peretti and This Present Darkness. So that's how wow. I can speak to this topic.
1: Wow. Okay. okay, really quick. What were the other four best-selling? Uh,
2: so I did it um, – I, I, I looked at only at novels that had sold more than a million copies and that marked some kind of change in the book market. So um, Jeanette Oak, Love Comes Softly, is the first one. Um, oh, yeah. Comes oh, out yeah. in 79. Yeah, that's a really important one. Uh, then there's Present Darkness, then um, Left Behind, then um, Beverly Lewis, uh, The Shunning. I looked at just the first, the first of the Amish romance novels. Um, and then The Shack is the, the last one, 2008. So from, from the 70s to the 2000s is kind of the span.
1: Oh my gosh, we could do a lot with each of those books. Sure. But we have to keep it to Peretti. So I want to jump in, and I think on like Wikipedia or something, it says that This Present Darkness has sold over 10 million copies, and that it basically single-handedly revitalized Christian fiction. Do you, mm. think, do you think Wikipedia is right? Did you write that? entry yourself
2: the I didn't trunk. write that entry I think revitalized is a tricky word it definitely changed Christian fiction everyone sort of agrees that that was a kind of a turning point um in, in Christian fiction I don't know about the total number sold um though I do know this is this is um kind of surprising but it currently sells about 8,000 new copies a year every so that- year every year. Oh, that's been like gosh.
0: 2015,
2: 2016, 2017. So that's not people buying, you know, the the buck 58 one on Amazon plus shipping. That's people right. who wanted a brand new from Crossway fresh fresh copy.
1: Okay, I just will be perfectly honest. I published a book in 2016. I have not sold 8,000 copies total yet.
2: It's a big number.
1: It's that's a pretty decent number. Yeah. And how how old is the book now? Uh
2: so it came out in eighty six, so thirty three years old.
1: Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay, so let's dive into some of your research. What did yeah. you find out about this present darkness? How did it come into the scene? What was what was Christian publishing like? What was the evangelical mindset like? Tell tell us what you have learned.
2: Yeah. So Christian publishing before Peretti is really dominated by romance novels. So Jeanette Oak and the prairie romance is kind of the classic, but Jeanette Oak has her book come out in 79 and it's so successful that now the whole world is full of evangelical romances and every publisher has evangelical romances. And it's just as far as the eye can see. Um, and they're, they're, Interesting. I mean, the evangelical romances really mark the change of the, of the book market to address women primarily as the primary consumers rather than pastors, rather than men who are doing some kind of major theological work for their job. Like, then the market is now moms, suburban women, middle class, middle age, um, um, Christian. Christian women um, and the theology that you find in the romance novels um, is mostly this um let go and let God um, trust that God wants the best for your life and trust that that means um, heaven and salvation but it also means a good family and a good marriage and it also means you know right now flourishing um, today and Paretti is really different than that i think that's that's the first thing to notice like hey he first of all so he's a at the time a 33 33 year old ex-pastor he's burned out as an assemblies of god pastor um his father was a pastor so there's a little bit of a sense of failure I mean, one, just he had a calling and didn't live up to the calling he thought he had. And two, it was also his dad's calling and he didn't live up to that. Uh, He's working in a ski factory, um, making ski equipment. It's not a great job. He doesn't like it. He's living in a 25-foot mobile home trailer um, in Washington State. And he writes this novel, which is really about struggle. You know, it's really, it's not about flourishing. It's not about trusting God. It's not about, like, your life kind of working out. It, it, it really, I mean, my argument in, in my dissertation is that the, the novel imagines that the experience of belief today is being in conflict with your neighbor. Like, that's what it feels like to believe compared to in the romance novels what does it feel like to believe it feels like trust it feels like falling in love it feels like learning to accept that god wants the best for you and that there's some sort of divine plan of of that involves um you know you having abundant life um that's really different than this kind of conflict narrative and this kind of burnt out struggling experience that that peretti starts with
1: yeah can i can i ask you one question go ahead yeah i think that uh you know we'll we'll be talking about different parts of the book on different episodes but i think one thing that you're bringing up is this background of burnt out pastor burnt out christian um and I, one of the words that really stuck out to me in this present darkness is the remnant. Like this idea that mm. not all Christians are the same and there is this core group that just keeps struggling on, right? And like,
2: and they're, they're very besieged. besieged. But
1: even though they're greatly outnumbered, they still have access to a power. Um, and through their prayers and faith, you know, they, they will eventually win. Mm-hmm. But this idea of the remnant, this... And in my mind, remnant means like, embattled minority do you think that's do you think that's true yeah
2: i think that's right yeah i think that's how i think that's definitely how peretti felt in his own life at that time um and it seems like a lot of evangelicals that was their the story they were telling themselves in the 1970s 1980s was this like yeah we've we don't have um, we don't have numbers for sure. We're we're a pretty and small group. And that even
1: on. Christians can be at war with each other, right? Is a theme in these books too, right? There's like the big mainline church with the corrupt pastor. There's the church trying to vote trying to vote out yeah. Hank Bush, you know, the main protagonist and and all that. As a as a pastor's daughter, this was all very familiar to me because small town churches are brutal. That's true.
2: Yeah. Pretty has a later book called uh, The Visitation, uh, which is also about pastors. Um, And one of the things that's fascinating in that book is how many church meetings show up. Pretty really likes talking about meetings and describing. that's in this present darkness too. There's all sorts of meetings. There's like a faculty meeting, there's newspaper meetings, there's demon bureaucracy meetings, there's angelic meetings, like everyone had, there's prayer meetings, like there's so many meetings in this book. Um, But he certainly is starting with this idea of pluralism that like undermines your confidence in your own, position or undermines your um, sense of power or sense of control. And some of that is Christian pluralism. The fact that there's just a bunch of different denominations and some of them are liberal <laughs> um, is a, is very much his yeah, starting so then,
1: How would you define the main enemy? So you said like belief in this book is about being in conflict with your neighbors, right? Belief in the one true God will lead to conflict with your neighbors, um, what mm-hmm. would you say, you know, trying to pinpoint who the, the great evil is in the book, obviously it's the demons and Riff, 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 Riff and all that, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I was just trying to get a, a little bit of a handle on it and, you know, it just really seemed to be tapping into these new age ideas. Um, but I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't quite get a handle on that. So how would you sum it up?
2: Some of it, it's interesting. Some of it maps on, pretty neatly to the rise of the religious right and the enemies that they would have described where it's, um, secularists, um, and new age people. And, and there's this, um, um, conspiracy. It really is a conspiracy novel in a kind of classic 1980s red dawn <laughs> sort of way. A small town America is besieged by this interdimensional, it sounds pretty familiar to like what focus on the family would have said in those years or what the moral majority, but there's also some weird elements like, um, Peretti's concerned about corporations. Um, you know, these, these, uh, the demonic conspiracy in the book actually hides as a, as a global conglomerate. There's which you don't hear later, but in the eighties, there's this, I don't know. So there's a couple of things like that, that are, um, that are curious in the way that he um, kind of uniquely imagines who is besieging the remnant of Christians. One thing that might help to think about it is that um, the Peretti is very influenced by his Pentecostalism, by his assemblies of God, background and theology. Um, But he's also deeply, deeply influenced by Francis Schaeffer um and the worldview thinking the Francis Schaeffer, and that's actually the point at which he connects with the publishers. So he's he has this like three hundred and seventy something page manuscript, and it's not like anything that's on the market. It's like Stephen King, but for Christians, and no one's interested until it ends up at Crossway. You know, the Crossway starts out as a tract publisher, and it expands. Um, Lane Dennis is inspired by Francis Schaeffer that they need to address all of life um, and do this worldview thing. Um, And their Christian publisher shouldn't just speak to, you know, the salvation message, but we should have books about art and we should have books about family and we should have books about business and everything from a Christian worldview, which also turns out to be a pretty good publishing strategy. It gives you lots of options. Um, so they liked this novel as a, as a, um, kind of worldview conflict told in a story that would appeal to people who wouldn't have picked up a hundred page, 200 page philosophical, you know, who are going to read Death in the City by Francis Schaefer. um, but, but could read a story about a burnout pastor who has a town infested by demons and has to learn how to pray like that, that works to, to invite people into that way of thinking about things um, in a, an exciting and engaging way. Dennis Lane Dennis says um, that this is a book for the moral majority that it can hold it up and say, this is how I see the world.
1: Wow. Okay, so I think that's really interesting. And I I think a question I have and I'm not sure you could even have the answer to this, um but something I'm just asking everybody I'm interviewing is do you think that Frank Peretti just wrote a really thrilling novel or mm-hmm. do you think he was truly trying to say this is how the world operates? This is how power and spiritual power in particular works in our world? And how a Christian should therefore be oriented to accessing power. To to me, that's what the moral majority is trying to do, to say this is how we need to align ourselves with power.
2: Yeah. I think Peretti understood that he was writing fiction. And some of the less generous and less careful interpretations of Christian novels sort of assume that the authors don't understand how fiction works. Um, and that doesn't seem right to me. So I, I think, I don't think there's any evidence that he thinks that this is literally how things work. Um, however, he does think that there are some imaginative truths and that the telling the story in this way, inviting people to, to kind of try on this reality in the way that you do with realistic fiction um will get people to some important um, moral lessons and spiritual lessons, Um, you know, including I think I think he would tell you that that the the final lesson of this book is that prayer is important. I mean, I think we can disagree that that's the major takeaway from the book. Like, that's a debatable point. But that would be his version of this is that Christians should pray (laughs) And that that's the most important thing, and we're not praying enough, and we're not praying about our neighborhoods, and we're not praying about our neighbors, and yeah.
1: But I mean, to me, and it's, he
2: absolutely thinks that's a takeaway from the book, but he also understands that it's a narrative and fiction, and he's telling you a story, and I don't think he's committed to the idea that like demons really are like this.
1: Yeah, I think for me, you know, we pray to access power, is what mm-hmm. I get from the book, right, and so going back to that larger theme. However, I I just, my own experience with the book is that I read it when I was like 11
0: Mm. and
1: everybody around me read the book and, um, you know, we used to joke, I don't know if this is like a real thing. So you tell me as someone who studied it, but we would always joke people who would read Frank Peretti. We would, um, see demons under every doily. Have you heard that phrase? A demon under every doily. And really just like people experience the book as sort of a spiritual awakening, right? Mm -hmm. um, Especially those of us who didn't grow up Pentecostal or didn't come from like an Assemblies of God background. uh, It was like, whoa, there's this whole thing out there. Um, Is that how people like received the book when it was first published?
2: Yes, with some nuance. I think absolutely people are. Experience it as a spiritual awakening and there was this idea of um spiritual warfare um prayer walking happens at about this time um as, as a sort of new phenomenon and you do see in the 70s not just from frank peretti in a lot of different directions you see a kind of pentecostalization of christianity there's a lot of charismatic practices that are spreading pretty far in christianity i mean including like worship bands um uh, and then you know on a sort of more intense level things like praying in tongues like there are lots of people who don't consider themselves pentecostal who are now like experimenting with praying in tongues um so the book is part of a larger trend uh, and a lot of people do experience it as a as a as a spiritual awakening and as a, a call to almost like re enchant their lives and 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 see the conflicts that they have in normal life in these kind of spiritual dimensions.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I heard that the book was not super popular when it was first published and that like somehow amy grant is a part of making yeah. it become a huge hit what tell me, yeah. tell me more about which this. is
2: a which is actually a really helpful way for thinking about audience reception i mean i think thinking of amy grant as like one of the key readers uh helps us think about what were what were people doing with this book so so um so yeah it's crossway kind of didn't know how to sell novels they hadn't had a really good idea of what to do with this book um bookstore owners didn't have anything like it and so they weren't excited to see it and they also didn't know what to do with it um and peretti tells a story in one interview of like working in the ski factory and getting a phone call with his end of the month numbers. And it was like 40 copies. And he was like, Oh, I'm going to be in this factory forever. Like I'm never going to be free from this. Uh, and then it changed for him without any, um, without anything that he did. It just sort of suddenly, suddenly there was these massive sales numbers, uh, thousands every month. Uh, and in it turned out this was because of Amy Grant. So Amy Grant at the time was 26. Um, she, what, so this was 87, 88. Um, so like five years before she she had age to age, um, the sort of big crossover album. She won a Grammy. It was the first contemporary Christian album to sell more than a, million copies and she just exploded um 85 she makes the billboard top 100 wins another grammy (laughs) and then um her christian record company signs a deal with a with a secular record company and so now she is going to be the first um evangelical subculture pop star who's also just a pop star but this turns out to be really hard, really hard on her. Um, personally, I'm sure you remember, and and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about the kind of conflict she had with some of her Christian fans. Um, she would get like flowers backstage, for example, and then pull out the note and the note would say, repent. There were people who were pretty, pretty upset, um, and pretty, pretty, um, aggressive towards her at the same time the pop music world wasn't receptive to her either there was lots and lots of talk by music journalists about whether it was okay for her to be religious and sexy at the same time Um, and lots of pretty misogynistic um descriptions of her and overt sexualization and her record producer, for instance, um, called a record journalist and reassured him that it was okay to lust after Amy Grant's. You know, and I don't know if you—I don't know if you remember, but like, she wore a coat and was barefoot on stage. Like, this is like the least. Provi- but she was just. People were talking about her in this, um, really, consistently gross way. And so she's living in this middle space where everyone's like this to her. And then her personal life is also um, really struggling. Her marriage is in serious trouble. Um, her husband has a uh, cocaine addiction, I believe. Um, she thinks about divorcing him and even at one point like has a plan to run away to Maine. Um, and then they get pregnant. She's very excited. She announces that she's pregnant on TV only to have a miscarriage, um, which makes that dramatically public in a way that no one should have to go through. And it's in this process that um, her tour, um, which includes Steve Curtis Chapman, has a little reading group. And they're reading sort of behind the stages and they decide to pick up this new random book, This Present Darkness. And, you know, she, she had really had, I mean, if you look at her songs, like she had really had a spirituality that matched pretty well the romance novels. It really was about abundant life and flourishing because you trust God. And that was not the reality of her life. And so then this other novel comes in that's about you're going to struggle and life is hard, but you have these tools at your commands that can help you. You can pray. You can join with other Christians and claim power in your life Um, and the fact that you're struggling is not a sign that you failed. It's actually a sign that, that the struggle is real and that your faith is real. Um, So she was so moved by it that she started talking about the book on stage as part of her set. So right at the same time that she's like just skyrocketing, like every single concert she has, is like another thousand, two thousand, ten thousand people at her concert. And she's just giving free advertising to this book. I mean, Crossway does not, this is not a promotion. Um, this is not a, a deal that she's worked out. It's just a book that spoke to her life for this, from what I can tell, for this reason that struggle is real and people want people want a way to deal with that.
1: Wow. Oh, my gosh. This is also fascinating. I didn't know any of this. Um, so Amy Grant kind of propels Frank Peretti onto yeah the consciousness of all these people precisely because her life is pretty terrible.
2: Yeah. And,
1: yeah, this idea that we have access to power that can help us which, with these struggles. Yeah. Which, wow. Which
2: I think helps us like, think about what power might mean to an average reader. Like, it might mean political power. It might mean I want control over my school board. But it might also mean, you know, more, something much more intimate, something much more, I don't know, personally tragic. Like, my kid seems to be alienated from me. Or my job is unfulfilling and I'm burned out now. Or you know there's a, there's a lot of those types of stories that i think that um that the novel ends up speaking to for people as part of that really broad spiritual awakening or or that you talked about
1: yeah i think one thing that's interesting is that you know the flip side of this finding comfort in these stories of you know we mm-hmm. have access to power is uh you know awakening to the reality like well, there's all these unseen forces at play that are Mm -hmm. evil as well. Right. And so I think that's the whole thing from my childhood, looking for a demon under every doily is this heightened awareness of evil in the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially I know a lot of listeners read this book when they were way too young (laughs)
2: yeah,
1: and, um, just being really scared about all the evil at work. One thing that went over. Which is
2: also, which is also a connection to Stephen King. If you think of a phenomenon of Stephen King, like my, my wife is deathly afraid of clowns, and this is because she watched it on TV way too young. Um, you know, and conspiracy conspiracies about evil being behind the scenes were really dominant in the 70s and 80s. And there's a Christian version of it. There's an evangelical version of it, but I, but we shouldn't think it's just evangelicals.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense, and you know, I did not grow up reading Stephen King. Right. Would you say? Would you say he's basically Frank Peretti is the Christian Stephen King?
2: I mean, I think that's the easiest um, um, connection to sort of pop culture novels. Um, you know, Stephen King is sort of odd for a wildly successful horror novel, horror novelist in the, in the eighties in that he's very religious um, people that wasn't common at the time. Uh, but there are other connections to um, Peretti's idea of demons seems pretty close, for example, to, to the, to the American horror writer and Terrible, terrible, racist HP Lovecraft. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Lovecraft's monsters and Paredes' sort of monsters have some 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 things in common that I don't quite know why they're in common. But um, but yeah, Stephen King's probably the most uh, well known comparison.
1: Okay, that's great. I mean, I just read Paredes' book, The Wounded Spirit, where he talks about
2: mm-hmm.
1: being horribly bullied. He had some really severe um, conditions that affected like the way he looked and the way he talked and Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And he just talks about being a teenager and being obsessed with monsters, which I do think is really interesting. And we see that in this novel, he spends a lot of time and you can just tell he's really enjoying the descriptions of these demons with their bulging eyes and their sulfur breath. And, (laughs) you know, it's like,
2: so as an much adult,
1: overkill as an adult yeah, reader you're I'm just an like oh my gosh kind of
2: delicious slash ridiculous the descriptions of the monsters yeah yeah
1: and the, and the angels are so dull in comparison like, <laughs> he, he like he obviously likes writing about monsters a lot more
2: it reminds me, me a little bit of the demons in the jack chick tracks though i don't know if you if that's a i a, just a read a poster. few and
1: they scared the crap out of me
2: so. <laughs> well some of them are st- Chick jacks are scary for a range of reasons. It depends yeah. on which ones you're reading. But the demons are kind of cartoonish, but also grotesque, but grotesque in a way that you kind of find them adorable. Um, and I Freddy's demons, I think, as an adult are a little are a little cartoonish. Slash so he just really loves describing the how they're molting and
1: and they're leathery wings. Leathery and,
2: uh, and yeah. scaly. They have all these yeah. textures.
1: Yeah. Somebody text. Okay. So I, we got to wrap this up here, but I wanted to just say like after the Amy Grant thing and his book started taking off, mm-hmm. um, yeah. What else can you tell us about how the wider Christian world started to receive his book and what they did with it?
2: Yeah. They... So he, he gets, um, uh, sort of immediately a contract for a second book and that's Piercing the Darkness. Um, and that I think sells like half a million copies in the first month. Like yeah that's also an amazing success. Um, and then, and then pretty, and they, these are, these are widely, um, read as you said, um, and, and, and very well received, um, and some people even talk, one of the, Jim Daly, I think, at Focus on the Family talks about um, reading This Present Darkness in the car with his wife as he was driving to take his first job at Focus on the Family. And that sort of cementing in his mind, like, yes, this is what we're doing. Um, but Pretty himself grows a little distant. He, he's a little frustrated pretty quickly with how the market just wants him to write the same novel over and over and over again. Um, And he kind of refuses. um, So he writes two like this. um, And then he writes one that has no supernatural elements at all. And people were a little upset. Uh, And then he writes, I think the visitation is an interesting one because the Christians end up being the bad guys and the church ends up being the bad guys. Um, He ends up, putting a a note in the front of his books that says this is not a spiritual manual, this is not theology, this is the the story. Yeah, Yeah, some of the the recent ones.
1: Interesting.
2: In part because of some stuff that was going on at Fuller um, with uh, C. Peter Wagner um, where people were practicing spiritual warfare and exorcism in a way that Pretty didn't want to be connected with. Um, and so he still, he keeps writing, but he never sort of hits this level again. Maybe the last thing I would say about his influence is that, um, when Tim LaHaye has his idea for a novel, um, his first thought is that he would co-author it with, uh, Frank Peretti and Peretti says, that sounds terrible. I won't, why would I do that? I have no interest in. Co-writing a novel that you've outlined for me, based on your theology, based on the rapture, uh, doesn't it sound interesting to, to me? So LeHaye's agent goes looking for somebody else and finds Jerry Jenkins.
1: Wow! And left
2: behind, obviously.
1: That's incredible. Now, you know, you mentioned in passing that. Uh, People, you know, the publisher had said this could be held up by the moral majority as a book that propagates their worldview. And you mentioned mm-hmm. Francis Schaeffer being really influential to Pareti. and, you know, Schaeffer definitely like kind of mid to late career did take a sort of hard turn into some dominionist theology that does involve mm-hmm. power and getting Christians into positions of power um, here in the in the world as we know it today. Uh And I just thought it was interesting. I, I was trying to look up Pretty's sort of like online presence and he doesn't really have much of no. one. Um And I feel like the last thing he posted on his Facebook was um, in September of 2016. So right before the 2016 elections. And right. I just wondered if you had any insight into why he just went radio silent.
2: I don't. That's a after, good question. After
1: all of this about power and embattled remnants of Christians
2: yeah. in a
1: cosmic battle against their, you know, pluralistic neighbors.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't know.
1: I think it's interesting.
2: Yeah, it is interesting. I do think that... I do think that Peretti... Always had a vision, though, of his life. You see this in his descriptions of his childhood and being bullied too. There is, though, always a, always a kind of just desire for, almost like the quiet homestead. Like he wants a room full of books. He wants to write, and he does have this desire for power against bullies and 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 against the forces that are besieging him, Um, you know, but he still is going to say at the end of the day that like voting is not as important as prayer. Um, There's some, some pietistic elements. There's some quiet elements of his, faith which i think readers respond to in different ways like some some readers say yeah yeah yeah," prayer and also we'll be in charge and other readers you know really really would take that and say oh like politics is a distraction ultimately maybe it's important in some sort of small way but that's not the the ultimate reality the ultimate reality is the clash between demons and angels i don't know that's it that's a that's some guess um I I don't know if his silence speaks to our current moment or something going on in his life or it's hard to tell.
1: I have one last question. I heard that this present darkness in the town of Ashton was based on a real town in Idaho. Mm. Do you you know anything about?
2: He lived in Idaho. Um, After the books were successful enough that he could leave the ski ski factory, he moved to Idaho. Um, But I don't have any reason to think that the town is based on that town. Um, You know, it's described actually as a Norman Rockwell town. Um, it's, It's so meant to be... A fantasy of normal, real America, middle America, small-town America, um, that even will say it looked like a fantasy of small-town America. And I think think that's important, understanding the novel. I don't know if it's a real town.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that I just kept thinking about, it does seem like a Norman Rockwell town, except for this large liberal university, <laughs> right? That's that's true. That's the thing that doesn't stick out.
2: So, Can we talk about the university for a second? Oh, please. I Let's think I think that's actually important, understanding the novel too. And the Schaeferian elements. I mean, he also has a hero who's a newspaper reporter, which doesn't happen in a lot of Christian imagination, a lot of evangelical imagination.
1: I mean, Marshall and Bernice are the two best characters, (laughs) don't you think? I do. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. Though a retelling of this book from Sandy's perspective would be would be pretty great. Um, Oh my gosh! gosh. (laughs) Fanfic. But I I think, um, Schaefer has this idea in his world view stuff that Christians are going to be fundamentally engaged in this conflict about facts, right? Like, we are fundamentally going to disagree with our neighbors about math and history. And, like, because he says Christians start from the idea that God is real, and other people, including just non-reformed, non-Orthodox Christians, start with like man as the measure of all things, or some kind of relativism, or something. So I think in Peretti's novel, the way that works out is that the struggle is over knowledge production, right? Which includes the university. Can we trust them? Are they open? You know, he tr- the Hank Bush tries to visit a, or no, Marshall tries to visit a class and gets kicked out. And the idea that classes in college aren't public space becomes a problem. Uh, um, whether meetings are public or private becomes a pretty constant conflict throughout the novel. Um, and then the newspaper and what they can, can and can't report is another source of conflict. Um, the reality or non-reality of the demons is another thing that the Christians and the non-Christians disagree about and then in a way that you know is quite upsetting to 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 read um these criminal accusations of rape which there are at least two subplots of false accusations the novel's very clear that they're false um which is the same theme right it's about what do we know how can we know it and why some people can know the truth and other people are not to be believed and that's the central power struggle of the novel, as I understand it. It's not for control of the town. It's over who gets to define reality and who understands real reality. um, And gets to say what real, real reality actually is.
1: And that is where my mind starts to get boggled, right? In this, Mm -hmm. in this novel, if, if I'm just looking at the surface, it's fine. We start doing what you're saying and we actually start to take it as word who has, access to truth and reality you know one thing that is so upsetting to me reading it is like taking sandy for instance right marshall's daughter she's just looking for truth like you could say that right she's going to college she is i think the novel literally says
2: that yeah yeah
1: and she makes one bad choice which in her mind is just the right choice i'm just trying to find truth and then is demon possessed and almost you know takes her life because of that. And so for me, I'm like, but how is that any different from somebody stumbling into a church and looking for truth there? The consequences are so severe and, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about the allegations of abuse in other uh, episodes on this series, but I think that's exactly right. I think on the theoretical level, I'm okay with Schaefer when it comes down to how we actually interact with our neighbors. There is such glaring, omissions if we don't actually take into account power yeah and who has power in society and so i don't think it's two i think it's like three or four people in the book right are falsely accused of rape or molestation because it was like the two the two main characters of course there's like a pivotal scene near the end of the book where they're both in jail because of false rape accusations by two young women who are both demon possessed. (laughs) But then there's other people in this story who like the former pastor and the former uh, newspaper editor themselves both had to leave town because of those same accusations. So yeah, it's such a recurring Mm -hmm. plot plot line and it's so disturbing.
2: Mm -hmm. It's no, it's really disturbing.
1: And to, and to follow those roots of this novel, sort of setting up this idea that false rape accusations happen all the time to specifically mm-hmm. the people God is working through, right? That's Satan trying to take them down, and I just see the ripple effects in evangelicalism from the millions of us who read these books and were like, "Yeah, that sort of makes sense." And you know,
2: it's hard not to to see that that connection. Um,
1: I think in like Willow Creek, in particular, I had multiple conversations with family members who I said, did you read the New York Times reporting, you know, on Bill Hybels and his abuse of power with women and his, and they're like, yeah, I did, but I just can't believe it. You know, God used him so much and this must be a plot. you know, it's just that same old rhetoric. Um, It's really powerful.
2: Yeah. I am surprised though, when I talk to people who read it, as young people i'm surprised at how many of them don't remember the <gasps> i don't i didn't remember
1: it at all nobody i
2: know remembers so them. many people which is very strange and terrifying like, it's pretty important to the plot and
1: but it seems so normalized to us do you
2: think mm-hmm. that's true i don't know why we don't remember i don't know if like people were maybe too young and so they didn't sort of fully comprehend what was being said though it's like pretty explicit yeah, the follow-up book, uh, "Piercing the Darkness," has the same subplot, but with child abuse. Like child, it's much more central to the to the uh, beginning of the story and the sort of the instigation of the action this false accusations of child abuse.
1: Yeah, and I think most most of us remember that a bit more because we were all spanked as
2: children. <laughs> Yeah, and for homeschooling families in particular, I think that was a like pretty often spoken of fear that that false accusation.
1: Oh yeah, is there anything else you'd want to say? Um, you know, to people listening to this right now, anything you know in your dissertation that we didn't quite get to about uh, this book and its importance?
2: I mean, I think one thing to remember is that readers aren't automatons um readers are actually pretty free and sometimes when people talk about the books they have this idea that like everybody read it and it influenced them all in the same way and i think um you know when you when you look a little closer and when you think about your own experience with reading a book um people do a lot of things with books they 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 connect with family through books. They think about one part of their life and not another part of their life with the book. They embrace uh, one character and they think another character is is flat. The, the book, um, the all these Christian novels are inviting readers to imagine things in a certain way, but they're not controlling readers. And so... Uh, we should be careful, I think, in talking about them to, to to remember whether it's our own younger selves or our relatives or or you know the people who are buying the eight thousand new copies today. That um, it's um, it's complicated. Humans are complicated in how they engage these texts.
1: Thank you so much, Daniel. This has been wonderful. Thank you
2: so much fun
1: i could go into these weeds of amy grant and frank peretti all day uh but thanks so much for taking the time thank you. you to talk to
2: me yeah i appreciate it it was fun